Who is this man? That's the series we're in. That's the question we've been asking along with so many others in the gospel according to Mark. They're gazing upon this Jesus and wondering who he is. Many of them are amazed or are astounded or they marvel at what he said or miracles that he did. And Mark provides answers throughout, not just on the lips of some people in the story, but as a narrator as well. So let's just review and remember. Chapter one, verse one, he told us that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is Messiah. He's the son of God. And just 10 verses later at his baptism, there's a voice from heaven, a private scene. The father speaks, you are my beloved son. A few chapters later, When Jesus calms the storm, chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples ask themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In chapter 8, Jesus asked them directly to see if they know now. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. That is, again, the Messiah, the answer, the promised one, the one who was to come. And it was at that time that Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man, there's another title, the Son of Man must be rejected and killed and on the third day rise from the dead. He repeated that in chapter 8 and 9 and 10. In chapter 9, when he was transfigured upon the mountain there, Peter, James, and John heard the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. You might remember that in chapter 10, a blind man named Bartimaeus cried out for healing, but in doing so, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You might recall that in chapter 11, a crowd followed Jesus into Jerusalem. They laid their coats on the ground, they laid palm branches on the ground, and they shouted, Hosanna which means save now. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. It was at that point that Jesus, in chapter 11 still, he entered Jerusalem and he began to denounce the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious aristocracy. He turned over tables in the temple. He made a a real mess in holy protest. And they responded, in essence, by asking him, who do you think you are? And then he said, I'm the son, in a parable, he told, the son who's going to be killed. Whatever they had heard about this Jesus, whatever they had heard from him, they do not like it. They did not believe but we know who he is. We know what he has said. We have it here in the Bible. Hopefully we do believe what Mark has shown us, that Christ is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one, the son of God, son of man, son of David. He's coming in the name of the Lord and he's coming with the promised kingdom. He is all. It's getting clearer as we go through Mark and it's getting more public as we go through Mark. And now today, as we come to these three verses in chapter 12, another layer of Jesus' identity is laid down for us. 
He is both David's son and David's Lord. But the question is, how can that be? So Mark 12, verse 35, it says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, quoting from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. We're coming to a culmination here near the end of Mark chapter 12. Not just the culmination of a story that's only a few short days away from finishing by the time we get to Mark 16. Not just the end of a very long day in the life of Jesus here, this Tuesday before the cross, but we're coming to a culmination of things that were foretold and foreshadowed hundreds of years before. So many Old Testament promises and plot lines are coming together right here at this moment in the story. Far more Old Testament promises and plot lines are coming together here than I could possibly refer you to or quote this morning. But I do want to continue this extended intro to show us a few Old Testament texts, apart from the one that Jesus actually quotes, which we'll turn to soon. But, but let, me presume upon, let me presume upon your interest in the Word of God, your care for the things of God by referring us to four Old Testament texts. And by the way, this is the kind of thing they tell you in seminary not to do. You're not supposed to intro thick theological portions of scripture by reading other thick and long portions of scripture, but I'm gonna do it anyway. So here are four Old Testament texts that I think are assumed here in Mark chapter 12 that we should be aware of. No need to turn to these. They'll be on the screen behind me. You can just maybe write down the references so you can return to these passages on your own later. The first is Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 1, there God says, Woe to the shepherds. And that means leaders, the national and religious leaders. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply." Verse 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, an offshoot, an offspring. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In Mark 11 and in Mark 12, the chief priests and the scribes and elders, the Pharisees and Herodians, the Sadducees and the scribes, these are Israel's shepherds. 600 years before this, God was addressing wicked 
and wayward shepherds through the prophet Jeremiah, and now what he warned was coming to fruition. So was this, second passage. It's just one verse. Isaiah 11, verse 1, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So get this in your mind here. Jesse, David's father, is the stump in this analogy. You, you picture in a stump? And then there's one coming who will be a shoot out of that stump. Picture a small twig that eventually grows up into an all-consuming tree and bears fruit. But, but it's a shoot. It's a branch that shoots up. And yet this one who is coming is also from his roots, it says. That is, from Jesse's roots. So if you're picturing the stump here, you've got the stump, which is Jesse. You've got the offspring which comes, the twig that grows out of it. And yet below the stump, we all know, are roots. Or in this case, a root. And the root and the shoot are the same thing. There's one to come who is before Jesse. And he comes after Jesse. That's not normal genetics, is it? Okay? Third passage, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 6. God says through Ezekiel, My sheep were scattered. They were wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, you leaders, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Verse 11, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And then in verse 23, there's a shift. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. What a shift that is. God's saying, I will do this. I will be the shepherd. I will feed them. I will protect them. I will heal them. David will. How can that be? Well, let's tuck that away and... One more passage of the Old Testament to read, a shorter one, Micah 5. 
In Micah 5, starting in verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, you, O city of David, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel. That's a human being, an offspring of David. From you, out of Bethlehem, he'll come. But his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So he's eternal. And then verse 4, it says, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What are we seeing in these Old Testament passages? Hundreds of years before Christ, we're seeing bad shepherds denounced, They will be judged. They will one day be overthrown. And then God will come and shepherd his people himself, except it might be David or one of his offspring. It sounds like he'll be one who's born. The city's even named. And yet he's from ancient days. He's David's branch. And yet his name is the Lord, our righteousness. Is he human or divine? Is he born or eternal? Is he from David or is he from God? Okay, now back to Mark chapter 12. Remember, Mark 12 is a confrontation between the Jewish failing shepherds of the time and the true and promised shepherd who has come, Jesus. These false shepherds have not liked Jesus' challenge, and so they have come trapping him in their talk, trying to trap him in his talk. They've come with questions, one right after another. They've come with questions to Jesus. It looks like they have stumped him when they ask it, but then he answers with perfect divine wisdom. And so now it says, verse 34, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is hopeless. You can't beat this guy at chess. But now he has a couple of questions for them. That's what we read. Verses 35 to 37. So now we're finally at our first point. Questions of his own. We now come to questions of his own. There are two questions here given by Jesus in verses 35 to 37. The first question isn't controversial or confounding. Verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The scribes did say this. So did everyone. It was a given in Jesus' day that the Messiah who would come would be a son of David. It's ironic that the religious leaders came to Jesus with questions that seemed confounding at first, but then Jesus proved that the answer was simple and obvious from Scripture. And here Jesus asked them a question which seems simple and obvious, but is going to lead to a confounding dilemma for them. Of course, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, But that's what Bartimaeus was saying in chapter 10. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's what the crowd was saying in chapter 11. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Anyone expecting a Davidic Messiah would have had 2 Samuel 7 in mind. So if you're counting, this is now our fifth Old Testament passage to look back to or think about. In 2 Samuel 7, God enlarged the promises to King David like this. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. On the one hand, 2 Samuel makes clear that God's plan would evolve through the line of David. On the other hand, just like those Old Testament texts we've read already, 2 Samuel 2 has some mysteriousness to it. An eternal throne? An eternal reign? He'll reign forever, a kingdom forever? That's a promise that is far too grand to be fulfilled by Solomon, David's son. I mean, he died. He's been dead a long time. It's a promise here in 2 Samuel 7 that's far too grand for any Davidic king in the Old Testament to have fulfilled. They all died. It's even a promise that's far too grand for the kingdom itself. It's not talking about the kingdom as a whole because the lineage and the reign had not been maintained forever. By the time of Jesus, the last reigning Davidic king was 500 years before. Did you know that? The time of Jesus, the last Davidic reigning king was over 500 years ago. But again, this is what they were waiting for, and all were waiting. Scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees, them all. They had the expectation that one day a son of David would come, and somehow he would resume, resume that reign, and he would somehow fulfill those promises. So they agree that Christ is the son of David. But then the second question Jesus asks them is meant to confound indeed. Or, or even, hopefully, better than confound, it's meant to lead to a necessary conclusion. In verse 36, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Remember before, he said the Christ is the son, right? The son of David. They agree with that. How is he also David's Lord? It's a riddle of sorts, but not the useless kind. Not like uh, what's black and white and red all over, newspaper. You know, it's not like that. This is, this is important stuff. It's built upon a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110 was written by David while he was king. Psalm 110 is definitely about the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come. Almost everyone in Jesus' day agreed with that. 
And Jesus presumes it. He presumes Psalm 110 was written by David and Psalm 110 is about the Messiah. But here's the question. How can David write, the Lord said to my Lord? The first Lord refers to God. In Psalm 110, it's Yahweh, God's special name. God, David wrote, said something to my Lord. So there's a Lord that's distinct from Yahweh Lord. There's an Adonai Lord. And how can David call the Messiah his Lord if it's also his son? Or put the other way, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? You see, especially in their culture, a father always had greater honor than a son. In their culture, no son was called Lord by his father. I mean, even in Star Wars, on the Death Star, everyone refers to Darth Vader as my Lord, right? Yes, my Lord. Yes, Lord Vader. Darth Vader, now hold on, Darth Vader refers to the emperor as my lord, but he doesn't refer to anyone else as my lord. The emperor, I don't remember this, I think this is true, the emperor doesn't call anyone my lord. He's top of the chain, and Darth Vader's number two. And the emperor calls Darth Vader my son. So do you see the hierarchy of honor, even in the very important Star Wars movies? So you get it now, right? How can the great King David refer to one younger than him, after him, even though he's the Messiah, it's his son, how is he also his Lord? And that one little phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, which is only three words in Hebrew, David indicated that the Messiah would be a son and his Lord. And doesn't that sound familiar? Psalm 110 is not the only passage in the Bible that speaks on these two different planes about the one who would come. And that's why we read those passages before. Jeremiah 23 and, and Isaiah 11 and Ezekiel 34. So now we come, secondly, to conclusions to be drawn. There's some conclusions to be drawn the most obvious conclusion that we must draw from Jesus quoting Psalm 110 is that Jesus was clearly inferring that he is God. When it says there in that quotation that he'd be exalted to the right hand, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that doesn't imply something inferior to God, to the Lord with all caps, but instead a sharing of the throne, the throne of God. At least in this case, the right hand here doesn't mean off to the side or vice regent or something like that. It means a sharing of the throne. He is God and he's man. We don't just have Jesus' words on the matter. He does that sometimes. He just says something because he knows it to be true and he speaks of his own authority. And sometimes, many times, he uses scripture to show his authority and his identity. And so here he turns to David in Psalm 110 for the basis of his humanity and his divinity. 
And he's saying, what else could David have meant in Psalm 110 if not that the Messiah was both his son and his Lord? And that's clearly what the whole New Testament teaches about this Jesus, that he's divine and human, born and eternal, son of David and son of God, Messiah and so much more. He is God in the flesh. As John put it in his gospel account, he's the word, the eternal word of God. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Or as Paul put it succinctly in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he said, God manifested in the flesh. That's what we have with Jesus. God manifested in the flesh. This is what we sing at Christmas time. And perhaps should sing more often than just Christmas time. And hark the herald angels sing. We sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity. Pleased with men as man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Think of just that small quotation there from Isaiah 7, verse 14. That there be one who's born of a virgin, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's born, and he's God with us. Now, either all of this is a, a bunch of baloney, or it's all true. There's nothing in between here. There's no good teacher allowed. I mean, either this Bible that we have is true and has divine authorship, not just human authorship, or this is the greatest hoax that has ever, ever, ever been employed upon man. Take your pick. You must take your pick. Even now, know that you are taking a pick. <laughs> but if Jesus is God, and if you believe that to be true, then know that you're to love him. Love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. Remember that from last week? Chapter 12, verse 30. Love the Lord your God. And what is Jesus clarifying here for us? That he's the Lord. Love him, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Remember that the scribe last week came to Jesus with that good question. Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, and, and the man agreed with Jesus' answer. And then Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But that's where it ended. The, the man didn't ask, what do you mean not far from the kingdom of God? Not far means good, but not in. Close, but not there. The man didn't seem to wonder. Who is this man that I'm calling teacher? Is he more than a teacher? Who is this man whom I'm asking and whom I'm approving of. 
He didn't ask Jesus who this man was. He didn't ask himself. No one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus just told them who he is in this roundabout way of quoting Psalm 110. He's the Christ. The Christ is a son of David. He is both son and God. Don't just get what he's saying. Don't just believe what he's saying. But if you're a Christian, love him. Love him to the full. Love him forever. He's the shepherd who has come to gather to himself a flock, a people. He will protect. He will care. He will feed. He will lead. He will be near. He will care. He will heal and bind up. He will go before us. As Drew read for us earlier in the service, Jesus said in John 10, he's the good shepherd and he lays his life down for the sheep. We can also draw conclusions by seeing how else the New Testament uses and explains Psalm 110. Did you know that Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New in the New Testament, Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage. At least 33 times it's quoted or alluded to. And every time in the New Testament we see language like Christ being at the right hand of God or seated in heaven, it's hearkening back to Psalm 110. That's not just exalted language that could be drawn out of any culture or an illustration for us to understand his, his exaltation and glory or authority or something like that. No, no, no. Every time the New Testament uses the language of, of right hand of God or seated in heaven, it's looking back to Psalm 110. Like in Ephesians 1. That God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. When Stephen in Acts 7 was being stoned to death, right before he died, he looked up to heaven and he saw the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul says in Romans 8, couldn't we quote this verse just every Sunday? We should all commit it to memory if we haven't. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. On and on I could go. I could go into Hebrews. We could talk about Colossians 3.1. That if Christ is above and seated at God's right hand, then we should set our mind on things above. And that we should run the race with endurance, Hebrews 12 says, because he had the, the, the what is it? He had the, the cross before him, and it was joy that was set before him. He despised the shame and is, is now seated at the right hand of God. So these are the conclusions we can draw about him. This is what it means to be in him. He is greater than David. He's greater than angels. He is exalted and living. He is God who was to come. His work is finished. 
and he is interceding for those who believe. Those are the conclusions for now. There are some future conclusions we can also draw. So third point, events still to come. There are events still to come. When Jesus quoted from Psalm 110 here in Mark chapter 12, he was just days away from his enemies. Remember that's part of the quotation? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus was just days away from his enemies having the apparent victory over him on the cross. The Romans got rid of this guy who could have been a little risky if this thing got out of hand and there was a revolt. The Jews got this one out of the way who maybe would have gotten too much Roman attention and opposition and the Romans would have taken it, taken it out on us all. Jesus is out of the way. Good, it's done. But of course, we know the rest of the story. We know that on the third day, just as Jesus promised, God raised him from the dead, proving that the cross was no defeat, but the plan all along and even the victory, the means by which God's kingdom would come and we would enter in. So in the resurrection, and later in his ascension, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And there he remains still today until one day his enemies are finally and fully put under feet or made his footstool. He's sitting on a throne one day his enemies will be his footstool. He'll have victory and vindication and justice will be met. That's part of what's still to come. A passage like Psalm 110, like so many Old Testament passages, it mingles two events, two grand events in the plan of God. The first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Maybe you've heard it said before that the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ from the Old Testament vantage point was like two mountain ranges from a ways away looking face on like we do with the Sandias here. It looks like it's just one big wall of mountain, right? Looks like this, it's the same. And then you, you get to the side of it and you see, oh, this thing has ridges. There are layers here. There are mountain ranges on that Sandia peak. And so it was with the first and second coming from far back. It looked like it was one event. And yet, as the first came up and came there in view, you could see, oh, these are two things, two mountain ranges. Now let's turn back to Psalm 110. We're not quite close to being done yet. Psalm 110, remember, is where Jesus quotes. And though he only quotes one verse, the whole thing points to him in powerful and clear ways. It points to not only his identity, but what's to come, what's still to come, what was to come as he was quoting Psalm 110. So let me just read this, and I'll pause in between almost each verse and just comment quickly. 
Seven verses in Psalm 110, the first is this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's exaltation, to share in the reign of God until I make your enemies your footstool. That hasn't happened yet. One day there'll be complete and utter victory. Eventually, that'll happen. Verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion. That's the incarnation where he left his dwelling place. The Lord sends forth his reign from Zion. Your mighty scepter, it says. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And that's what Mark has been showing us. Rule in the midst of enemies. A kingdom in the midst of opposition. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The day of your power is a day of judgment. It's the second coming. And in that day, his people will fight for him. And they'll, they'll do it freely, without compulsion or, or by force or out of duty. He will be on his side and they'll be glad. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. No one seems to know what this means. One commentary I saw said, it is essentially unintelligible. <laughs> Thankfully, that's very rare in the word of God. Thankfully, so much is very clear, and it's very rare that we run into something like this. What does it mean? From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The best guess is that it has something to do with eternity. I'll let you figure out how. Verse 4, this is more clear. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is a done deal. It's for sure. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest. Psalm 110 is about a king. And then it says you're a priest. And in those days, priests weren't kings and kings weren't priests. You couldn't do that. Remember, Saul got in big trouble when he tried to make sacrifices as a king. But Melchizedek was different. In Genesis 14, there's this guy who comes out of nowhere, and he's a priest king. And he's not of the, 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 the Levi tribe. He's before all that. And Jesus, Hebrews 7 tells us, is a lot like this Melchizedek in the sense that Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy. It's almost like he's eternal. He comes out of nowhere, and then he goes out of nowhere. Kind of like Jesus. So Jesus is an eternal priest king and the Messiah. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. And here the Lord is still talking about Messiah. The Lord, Messiah, is at your, Yahweh, your right hand. And he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He, the Lord, Messiah, will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Again, the second coming. He will execute judgment, verse 6, among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. A universal judgment, a violent one, graphic one. Read, Psalm, uh, read Revelation 18 and 19 with these words in mind here in Psalm 110. And then verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, in the end, 
after the battle, there'll be vindication and victory. There'll be rest and refreshment. Two mountain passes here appearing as one a thousand years before the first mountain range would be seen. But now the mountain range has come and we can see it comes in two stages. We're in between those two mountain passes. But it is as good as done. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. The end is coming. Jesus will come back. And in this age now, this now and not yet time, let us not forget that we are called to be his emissaries, his heralds as Christians. Let us not forget that when he sent out the disciples first in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it was with all authority in heaven and in earth that he sent them out to make disciples of all nations. They are to welcome and warn the world around them. You see a welcome and a warn in passages like Hebrews 10, where it says that he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and he sat, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Which part of that relates to you the most? when he comes again to judge his enemies or when he comes again to bring to completion that sacrifice that he's made for sins and brings us to himself. Christian, remember that his exaltation and ascension and being seated now means that right now, get this, Jesus is the object, the full, the consuming object of heaven's worship. So we read in Revelation 7 about saints and martyrs with angels beside. They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. They serve him and worship him and sing of him and to him and to each other before his throne, in his presence, with eyes to be able to behold his glory day and night. It never gets boring. It, it, it never peters out. It just keeps growing in its extravagance and satisfying nature and joy. And one day we will join this throng in a new heaven and a new earth and we will finally love this Lord, our God, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we will love each other too. That's a neat thing as well. We will love each other like we were made to do. That's what awaits because of who he is and what he's coming to do. And in the meantime, we're to live out just a glimpse of these things. 
of glorious heavenly love for him and love for each other. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we don't know our sin like you do, but we know it. We confess it this morning afresh. We praise you for the sacrifice that you made, a ransom for our sins. We thank you for your reconciling work in the cross and resurrection. We join heaven this morning in exalting you we acknowledge that you meet with us, that you're here. And though we do not yet see you, we love you and we rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Give us more of that joy. Give us more of that confidence. Give us the boldness that we need, Lord, to represent you in this world. Let us continue in life to ponder who you are and what you have come to do. Let us confess and rejoice even now in song. Help us to sing like those who know who this is, who know what he came to do, and know that it changes everything. Amen.